Like many organizations, the intelligence community is grappling with the rapid advances of generative artificial intelligence over the past nine months. Many spy agencies are now evaluating their plans for both using the technology and defending against its use. For the latest, I'm joined by Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well, Eric. How are you? I'm good. I am good. So what are intelligence agencies saying about AI today? Yeah, this was a huge topic of conversation at the Intelligence and National Security Summit out at National Harbor earlier this month. And, and, you know, despite their propensity for kind of predicting developments across the world, the chat GPT and generative AI really caught a lot of the intelligence community off guard. That was one of the big takeaways I got from this conference. George Barnes is deputy director of the National Security Agency. He called it a big acceleration in AI since last November when ChatGPT first launched and some of these large language models started getting rolled out publicly. Here's Barnes talking about that a little bit more. So what we all have to do is figure out how to harness it for good and protect it from bad. And that's this uh, struggle that we're having. Um, Several of us have actually been in uh, various discussions with uh, a lot of our congressional oversight committees just struggling with this whole notion of how do we actually navigate through the power of what this represents for our society and really the world? You never like to have the three words caught off guard associated with your intelligence agencies. So that's a little bit scary. But what plans do the what plans does the NSA have for AI? Yeah, Barnes says the NSA is is now developing a new internal AI roadmap to really guide its use of the technologies across the board. NSA has been working on automation and AI for decades. AI is a pretty broad field, but it seems like this these developments with these large language models like ChatGPT have really initiated a new conversation within the agency. That's really focused on bringing forward the things we've been doing for decades, actually, in foundational AI, machine learning, but then tackling these newer themes such as generative AI and then ultimately more um, artificial general intelligence, which is beyond the generative and something that industry is still searching to grasp. We have to understand how to leverage it, yes, for mission, but also for all manner of things that make any organization efficiently run, but then also how to understand how the adversaries are going to use it against us and our interests. And that's George Barnes, Deputy Director of the NSA. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so that's the NSA's perspective. How is the issue being addressed more broadly across the intelligence community as a whole? Yeah, officials say they're looking at a range of different use cases uh, around these large language models. As you can imagine, a lot of them center on creativity and content generation uh you know one thing the cia for instance is looking at is how they could these models could create a a first draft of a report or something like that that then a, a person could go in and check and edit Another potential use case is summarizing a a whole bunch of different documents into some sort of synthesized report so that then you could go and do uh, different queries against that that synthesis. Uh, You know, the NSA, we talked about them earlier. They're also looking at similar models or similar use cases for these models. And And then up at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Rachel Grunspan is director of the Augmenting Intelligence Using Machines Initiative. Here's how she's looking at the issue. I see widespread use of simulations. I see hybrid wargaming. 
the strategic use of red teaming, and anything that is getting AI in the hands of individual officers, regardless of their job, regardless of their role, regardless of their background, technical or not, just maximizing the creative capacity of the, of the entire workforce. That's where I see us going. Obviously, probably not everybody's excited about the idea of using AI more in the intelligence field. What are officials saying about the potential drawbacks of these large language models? Well, one immediate one is just the cost and time to train these things. I heard during this conference officials, technical officials talk about how these models are pretty static in terms of the massive cost to train um, a new model on you know, some sort of new type of uh, use case that you might want to use. And it's going to take months to actually train a new language model. So in terms of doing things at speed and scale, uh, some of these language models might be a little bit slow in that in that sense. Another big issue is understanding exactly why these different models use make different decisions. There's some questions around the extent to which you can actually understand what these these different AIs are, are doing and why they're coming up with different answers for things. And, and for intelligence agency officials, understanding both the data that's feeding the models is hugely important, and then understanding that the models themselves is hugely important. That's something that Defense Intelligence Agency Chief of Staff John Kirchhofer talked about during the Intelligence and National Security Summit. We have to trust the data before we do anything else. I think secondary for us is making sure that the machine learning algorithms that we put in place aren't just ethical, but they're also tradecraft compliant, right? In the same way that we hold our human analysts accountable for tradecraft, we need to do the same thing for the machine. We need to know what's inside the black box. Interesting. And so what is Congress going to say about all of this? I imagine that they have some opinions to chime in on how the intelligence community works with AI. Well, the immediate thing for Congress and how the intelligence community is using data is this big fight around uh, Section 702 powers and, and, and ha- the extent to which the intelligence community can kind of tap into those. But, you know, on the artificial intelligence front, uh, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence has advanced its fiscal 2024 intelligence authorization bill to the full Senate. Uh, They did that that last month. And in that bill, there is a requirement for the intelligence uh, director of national intelligence to establish policies governing all spy agencies use of AI within one year of the law's enactment. And those policies would include guidelines for evaluating the performance of models developed or acquired by intelligence agencies, as well as standards around the data used to train models that are acquired by agencies. So harkening back to some of those challenges that we talked about previously, you know, the ODNI last published an AI strategy for the intelligence community back in 2019. Uh, You know, that's more than four years ago. There's been a lot of progress, as we've talked about, in just the last nine months And so uh, intelligence officials are already talking about updating that strategy as well. So that's something to look out for uh, in addition to what Congress is asking the intelligence community to do. And maybe they can use ChatGBT to write up those big reauthorization bills. (laughs) I don't know if they'd like that, but we'll see. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you so much. You got it. You can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership Today 
especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
as CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part, 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.